So let's take a moment and pray and uh, go to the Lord. Father, thank you for those that have come through this course, Lord, and the, the desire, the interest of being a part of your church family in a very specific way. I ask that you would help me to communicate faithfully tonight, uh, Lord, and that you would uh, really accomplish your will in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so I'm going to start with a story. See if it sounds familiar to you. A person or a couple begins attending a local church. They enjoy the music, like the sermons just fine. After a while, someone talks to them about formalizing their affiliation with the church in membership. But they either politely decline or become squeamishly uncomfortable. Why does this happen? Why is it that so many people lack the desire to become members of the local churches that they're already attending? No doubt, part of the reason is that the commitment phobia of our culture drives people away from anything related to commitment. We, we tend to, you know, don't, you're told growing up, don't sign anything, right? And, and, and so, how dare I commit to anything? Um, it affects the way people think about church. Some, blame, some of the blame, I think, belongs at the doors of the church, local churches, where uh, there's either a, a lack of biblical teaching on the subject. I mean, if you mention church membership, one of the first things anybody says is, well, let's not talk about it anywhere in the Bible. Well, okay, let's put some parameters on that. We're gonna, as we're going to see tonight, it may not be specifically spelled out as we think of it, but to say that it's not talked about in the Bible might lack a little information. So we're going to engage that topic biblically a little bit. So some of the blame belongs at the doors of the church for that reason, as well as the fact that, frankly, many churches treat church attendance a lot like stores treat your consumership. If we run the right specials, you'll keep coming back. It is entirely incumbent upon us to make sure you want to keep coming back. And and there's no commitment required on the part of those who are attending the church. And so as long as we continue to treat people like consumers in the church, we're going to keep getting that result. And so, again, I think some of the blame belongs at the footsteps uh, of the church. Uh, and never mind uh, the fact that there, there is a reality, the fact that there has been hurt that has been caused by churches, and, and, and so people tend to be a little bit squeamish uh, about that kind of thing. So I get that. But are there biblical reasons for emphasizing membership in the local church? Why, for instance, is it better to be... Uh, a member than simply a regular attender. I mean, you know, might it be that you're just better off being an attender? Or is there some benefit to being a member? Um, Especially if membership involves more obligation, why would I want that? Might the logic go. Uh, What does it mean to be a member of your church? What is it that potential members are asked to commit to? How are members asked to live out that commitment in practical ways? These are some of the questions we want to grapple with tonight and and address as we look at this. So let's start with the the big one, the elephant in the room, as they say. Uh, Is church membership even a biblical concept? This idea that some think is just very American and so modern that they certainly didn't have that, you know, back in the Stone Age when the church began, as many people want to think. Well, Newsflash, it wasn't the Stone Age, right? They're actually a very organized people. So let's examine some of these things. Um, <clears throat> one of the first things we've got to say about church membership is, is, is this. Church membership is not for anybody. It's for believers only. Attending a church can be for anybody. We, we don't shut our doors to, to anybody. You know, oftentimes people ask me, questions, well, maybe not that often, maybe I wish it were more often than it is, but I've had the question asked me, you know, I've even had people say it this way, hey, I'm, 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 I'm a homosexual, practicing homosexual, am I welcome to come to church here? And my answer is emphatically, yes, you are welcome to come to church here. Now, that won't change how we preach, and you're going to run into some things that might offend you. <laughs> However, we desire that you do come, and I want to engage you about that topic. Let's discuss that. Okay, but if the question were, can I become a member here in good standing and continue in my homosexual lifestyle? Well, that's a different question. Okay, it's a different question because we're all sinners, but there are certain commitments we have to make toward walking in a path of righteousness toward being a member. So not everybody's qualified for membership here. 
right? Not everybody's qualified for membership, but anybody, I mean, unless there's some criminal issues involved or safety risks to the rest of the congregation, anybody is welcome to attend here. So we, we certainly need to make a distinction between just anyone who's attending and who members are. You know, some people ask me, say, well, if I'm just coming all the time, does, can I be a member? I mean, isn't that what it means to be a member? Well, no, I've, I've actually had one unbeliever who attended here for six years straight, was probably more faithful than many of the believers I knew, but he would have told you straight out he was not a believer. He certainly cannot be an, a member here without being a believer, never mind his uh, faithful attendance um, and wanting to you know, understand what we're all about. Um, is there a biblical background for church membership? Well, there certainly are no indisputable proof texts that we can run to for local church membership where it says, yeah, look here, they signed people up and people had a commitment form and blah, 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 blah. That's just not found in the Scriptures. Uh, but we do find passages that imply formal membership in local assemblies. And so we're going to look at those. And for example, the Apostle Paul uh, you may recall at Corinth, there was a fellow who was uh, living in a flagrant kind of sin. Paul said such as would not even be tolerated amongst the heathen, the Gentiles. Um, and, and, and Paul speaks of excluding that purpose, uh, or ex- excluding that sinner from the congregation. So to have a formal exclusion implies that you first have to have a formal inclusion. Right? I mean, you can't, you can't exclude somebody from something that they're not a part of. I mean, you know, if, if you say to somebody, well, you know, we, we're really excluding you from membership here. Well, I wasn't a member. You know, <laughs> so what? Right? That would be their response. So there, there has to be some at least implicit inclusion at a minimum before you can have exclusion at, at, at any level. Uh, but Paul exhorts the Corinthian church to remove a brother from their ranks. Um, and, and let's read that. This is in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 2. Uh, you have become arrogant, Paul writes, and have not mourned in, uh, instead, so that the one who has, had done this deed would be removed from your midst. Verse 7. Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new lump, just as you are in fact unleavened, for Christ our Passover also has been sacrificed. I wrote you, and um, I'm sorry, I'm jumping to verse, I believe I'm in verse 12 now, although I might, might be a little off on my ver- verse noting here. I wrote you in my uh, letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous or swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. But actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother if he's an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or a swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Note the, impl- the implication there. There are those who are inside and outside of something, right? They're inside and outside of something. You have those... In- Remember, the church grew up in the synagogue environment, and even when it broke away, the way it was structured was much like the old synagogue. And the synagogues in these Gentile cities where they went, they always welcomed the unbelievers in. The Gentiles, in fact, in the book of Acts, you frequently run into this term, God-fearing Greeks or God-fearing Gentiles. They were Greeks who were not Jewish, they were not proselytes, but they attended synagogue regularly because they were attracted to this worship of one God who made heaven and earth. And, and they saw that as being far more, you know, uh, credible than the religions of, of Asia that they grew up around. But they, they, they weren't willing to get circumcised and follow all the Eton laws and, you know, all the things that were involved there. So they would be at the synagogue. They were always welcomed in, but they were never considered to be Jews. Well, likewise, the church would have welcomed anybody in who wanted to come and hear the gospel to their uh, public meetings. But they would have recognized or distinguished between those inside and those outside of the fellowship or the congregation. He continues, For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who are within the church? But those outside God judges. Remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see, Roman law allowed both Jews and later Christians as a sect of Judaism to judge certain matters within their own communities. They didn't have to bring it to Roman court. Certain things were allowed to be handled within those communities. And they could handle, you know, deal with that and deal with that. And if it got beyond a certain point, then it had to go to Roman law court. So they had to distinguish who was and who was not within those communities. 
in order that they might know who they had that authority to, to, to exercise uh, oversight in, in their lives. If someone who is unsaved or newly saved comes through our doors, at what point do we say they're within? You know, maybe they get saved one week. Do we, do we just assume that they're in? Do we give them full rights of membership? Does it take three months, six months? At what point? Or do they need to make a conscious decision that they're in or not in? Is it something they have to choose to do? It would seem reasonable that they would have some say in the matter of whether they're in or whether they're out, right? Um, in that situation. Uh, Paul is calling for exclusion of the immoral brother. So we, we have to assume some form of inclusion prior to that. And then he refers to, in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, he refers to a majority. Um, so uh, in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 6 and 7, Paul writes, Sufficient for such a one is the punishment which was inflicted by the majority, so that on the contrary you should rather forgive or comfort him. Otherwise such a one might be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Now, what was going on there? Whether it was the same guy we read about in 1 Corinthians or that was excluded there or some other guy, Paul is here in 2 Corinthians referring to a fellow who has repented, who was first excluded. And now the church in Corinth, now that he's repented, they don't want to let him back in. And Paul says, well, wait, wait, the punishment's done its job. The idea is that, you know, as you go to Matthew 18, that, you know, he's removed from the church with the idea that he'll repent. Right, the whole goal is repentance and restoration and reconciliation, and this fellow is wanting to be restored, and they're like, no, 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 that's. But note the phrase, the punishment inflicted that was inflicted by the majority. So you go back to Matthew 18. He's brought before the church. It seems like there's this place where the majority has to weigh in on whether this person is to be excluded or included. Right? Well, a majority. I mean whether it was a strict 50% plus one or more than half or however they determined majority, it implies that you know how many there are and you know that there's some say from them that, that equates to more than half of them. You, you have to have some sort of accounting, some sort of counting people and counting their voice in the matter to ever arrive at something called a majority. You, you can't have a majority of a, a nebulous number that just doesn't really have any boundaries. It's kind of hard to have a majority in that scenario. Okay? So, again, not explicit, but certainly implicit, some form of formal inclusion that is involved here. But I think it goes further than that. How about the fact that the, church, the early church kept a list of widows? Now, I know a lot of churches that keep lists. They keep membership lists, they keep a variety of lists, but I really know of very few that keep lists of widows especially with lists of requirements for what, it quali- what qualifies one to be on the list beyond just simply being a widow. It takes more than that. And so they had lists. They were, they were great list keepers, by the way. Uh, but in 1 Timothy 5.9, Paul refers to uh, someone being allowed to be on the list of widows, which meant the church then would have responsibility. Just making sure they're not tornado sirens. Sounds just like regular. Okay. Uh, so, so, so Paul, you know, before somebody can be, a widow can be put on this list where the church would assume some financial responsibility for them, you know, do they have family members that can care for them? Were they faithful to their husbands? Did they teach their children? Were they not drunkards? I mean, he runs down this list of things, and if they qualify, then they're put on this list. But the idea that you have a list and you're keeping track of widows implies that, that A, they were fairly organized, and the concept of listing things was not foreign to them. Counting was not foreign to them. I mean, for instance, we would not suppose, unless we were just completely ignoring context of the Scripture, that any widow in Ephesus, that's where Timothy was at the time, that any widow in Ephesus, saved or unsaved, would be allowed on that list. You know, oh, she's a widow, let's take care of her. Well, no, that wasn't the church's responsibility, unless first, she was a believer. Second, she had been faithful to her husband. And then these other character qualifications that Paul lists. Then she can be put on this list. So they had to track these things and think about these things. Um, how about the book of Acts? The early church counted who was in and who was not in. So in Acts 2.41 and 47, we read the following. Those who accepted his message, Peter's message, were baptized. And about 
3,000 were added to their number that day. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So note that there is a number. He was adding to their number. They, 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 they were counting. And there was enough of a count that Luke, years later, when he's looking back on the history, could make the comment that there were about 3,000 that day. Now, I suppose, had he really wanted to, he could have contacted somebody and found out a more exact number. But 3,000, you know, when, when, you, when you're writing a, you know, a decade, two later, uh, to be able to walk, look back and say, yeah, there were, there were about 3,000 that day, it shows that they actually counted that there was a number that he's cognizant of it and that it was roughly 3,000 people. So he's recording that. And daily there were being added to their number. So they were tracking this fact. How about Acts chapter 4, verse 4? But many of those who had heard the message believed, and the number of men came to be about 5,000. So the church has grown from 3,000 to where now the number of men is 5,000. We might suppose maybe the, the group is 15 or whatever one might say if that, you know, based on that count. You might wonder why. Did they suddenly switch to only counting the men in Acts chapter 4 when they were counting everybody in Acts chapter 2? Does that ever cross your mind? It's like counting families, yes, uh, it is. I think there's another reason. If you read, go back in the Old Testament when Israel was coming out of Egypt and they were going into the land to conquer the land, when they were determining how healthy and strong the, 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 the army was, there were this many men. They counted the men because that was the fighting army. And if you look at the primary theme of the book of Acts, it's Christ going with his army into the world to conquer through the gospel. Okay, and we talked about that as we went through the series in the book of Acts, starting with the beginning where he ascends to his throne and he's going to take the world, starting in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. So it's a conquest kind of book. And so to make that reference that ties it right back into the book of, uh, of um, Joshua and how they counted the army then, it ties it into the history of God's people in a way that reminds us of what's really going on here. It's an interesting little detail. It's not just that men only counted and women didn't. That would be far from the storyline in the book of Acts, obviously, which mentions women in a number of places. Um, sorry for that side note, but it's just an interesting one uh, for me. Uh, how about this truth? God himself keeps a list of all believers. Now, whether it's a literal, physical list, he refers to it as a list. Follow, follow me in, in um, uh, Philippians 4, for instance. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also, this is verse number 3, Philippians 4, 3. I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel, together with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are written in the book of life. So, God has this book, if you will, called the book of life. Now, I get it. That could be purely a symbolism or an allegory. It might well be that, that God, being that his memory is perfect, being that he has perfect recall of everything, that this book is some sort of you know, metaphorical reference to this accounting in God's mind. Maybe that's the case. Uh, I won't, don't have any trouble with that. But on a human level, it's referred to as a book of life. And certainly, we who do not have perfect memories and do not know all and do not have perfect recall might well be dependent upon books or computers or lists or things of that nature. And if God can even metaphorically be referred to, if it's not in some literal way, if he can even metaphorically be referred to as having a book of life, then certainly it opens the probability that we too should be aware of who is and who isn't included in a local church's book of membership, if the book of life is an eternal book of membership. Now, I can't tell you who from our roles is or is not on the eternal book of life. That's not my job. Okay? I can't tell you if all of our members really are there. It might be that some of them are not genuine believers. I, I grant that. But it is our job as a team of elders to identify who is and who is not included in that body of believers. I don't have time today, but there's a um, great book by a fellow whose name I'm not drawing to mind right now. It's a great book. Um, called The Surprising Offense of God's Love. I think that's the title of it. And, and he talks in there a great bit about church membership and the significance that it has. He goes into it far more in depth than, than I'm going to be able to hear. Uh, and a very worthwhile read, by the way, on a number of levels. It's a, it's, a, it's a 
It's a good resource. Uh, but the surprising offense of God's love, we do carry it in our resource center, just in case you're wondering. Um, how about Revelation twenty-one twenty-seven? And nothing unclean, no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into the New Jerusalem, the, come into it, the New Jerusalem, uh, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. So there again, a reference to this book of life. And that reference to the book of life only really meant something to the original audiences because Jewish history would have been full of references to lists that they kept, records that they kept. I mean, how how many times have you been reading through the Old Testament and thought to yourself, well, these genealogies never end? I mean, and then they'll go through this scenario and they'll talk about, well, this priest, the son of this guy, the son of this guy, and then this priest, and this guy played the tambourine. Why why do I care who played the tambourine, right? I mean, you know, I'm exaggerating a little, but it's like they, they go through these ridiculous lists of what everybody did, at least from our perspective, ridiculous, but there's nothing ridiculous about them because you get later... If you follow through like the, the, the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, so, so now we've gone from, you know, from Egypt across the wilderness into the promised land, the kings, the failure of the kings, the exile to Babylon, now the return to the land, Ezra and Nehemiah. And they had to determine who was allowed to serve as priest and who was not allowed to serve as priest, who was allowed to serve in the temple and who were not genuine Levites. So, then, anybody who might have been a priest, they would acknowledge them. They, they, you know, they claimed to be a Levite. They could maybe recount their history. They would acknowledge them. If they could not show on paper their genealogy, they couldn't serve. We'll acknowledge you. We'll say great things about you, but you can't serve because we need proof. We need evidence thereof. Okay? It was a big deal to them to have their name written. And so when we get to the New Testament, to have our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life, is a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. And of course, that's something God wrote from before the foundations of the world. Again, whether, whether metaphorically or actually, doesn't really matter significantly from my perspective. But the point being that there's this reality of our names being written somewhere in an eternal way. Well, on earth, that that mirrors something on earth. And in the Old Testament, that mirrored the lists and the genealogies. Those genealogies were important to them. They were very important to them. And, and so to get to the New Testament and suppose that the church just immediately said, oh, that stuff's not important. To, to get to the New Testament and suppose they kept no records of membership, in my mind, would be uh, counterintuitive to understanding who they were and what kind of people they were. I would actually need evidence that they didn't do it because silence would argue for it. And given that the evidence leans in the favor of actually that they did keep these records, though it's not explicit, even if it were completely silent, I think just given who they were and what their history was as a people, we, we, we should assume some level of record keeping and counting and accounting of who was in and who was not based on what we have in Scripture. Uh, and, and based on how much time the, the Bible itself spends, to rec- spends recounting records and, and who did what and, and so forth. Um, God has always made a clear distinction between his people and the world. Um, drawing this distinction was the reason for the ceremonial and civil laws of the Old Covenant. Um, laws which distinguished Israel from the nations around them as a people set apart for the Lord. And, and, and I think such clarity of distinction between God, God's people and the world argues for clarity and specificity of our membership roles. Now, what does church membership signify? Okay, I'm going to take some, just a little bit of time and talk about what it signifies. Well, it signifies a, a church's corporate endorsement of a person's salvation. Okay? Um, it, it's the body of believers affirming and saying, yes, this person. I mean, first of all, the elders obviously affirm and attest to a person having expressed genuine faith. And the body of believers who lives in and around them uh, would, would affirm that as well. They wouldn't you know, be able to say, nah, 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 I've seen some things that would, would make me question that. So there's this external affirmation, uh, which, which is not insignificant. 
you know, there are a lot of people that are self-deceived about a lot of things. And, and so for, for a body of people, the very body which we are adopted into as family, to look and say, yes, your faith evidences itself in some very real way. Because, frankly, if you're like me, we all have those moments of doubts about our own experience and how genuine our own experience is because we all fight. It's a fight of faith, right? That's what the Scriptures call it, is a fight of faith. And we all have that. But we have one another, and we walk it out with one another, and we can encourage one another as long as it's called today, right? But we do that with those who are part of the church family. Matthew 18, if your brother offends you, go to him. If he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't repent, you bring two or three brothers with you, right? And you go to them. And you hear, well, why would you bring others? Well, you want, you want them to evaluate. Maybe, maybe what you're suggesting he's doing, that is a sin. Maybe it's not really a sin. Maybe the brother's not in error. And they can say, no, 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 hey, I, I, don't, I think you've got it wrong. I think he's not in error here. It's all good. Or they can say, hey, brother, he's right. You need to repent, right? I mean, it can go either way. Okay, so you go to him, and that's what, by the way, if you're ever going to somebody and you're bringing two or three with you, don't fill them in on everything before you get there and slant their opinion against the situation. You say, hey, I've got a situation I need your help with. Can you come and meet me with this brother? Well, what's it all about? I'll tell you that when you get there, because it's only fair that he be there when I explain it. You know, I've had times when I've had somebody who will come to my office and they're coming to seek some counsel or a situation. And in the course of discovery, you know, kind of hearing them out, I realize you've got a problem with your brother. Have you gone to them about it? Oh, no, they won't listen. I didn't ask you if they'd listen. Have you gone to them about it? I mean, who are we to judge whether or not they'd listen? I mean, it's not, it's not our job. Well, no, but I'm, I mean, I'm just not willing to do that. Okay, well, you want to resolve this, right? Yeah, but I just, I don't see it. Okay, well, then the next time we're getting together, uh, I'll call the other party and, and say, excuse me, can I have you show up at, at 7 o'clock? Uh, that'll be, a, or maybe I'll say 7.15. I'm meeting with his brother at 7, and if you could come at 7.15, I, I want to let him know that you're coming, but we need to sit down and talk together. So if you could be there at 7.15, we're going to have a sit down. What's it about? Well, you'll have to see when you get there. <laughs> and so they come at 7 and say, okay, great. You know how we talked about you need to meet with your brother? Well, they're going to be here in 10 minutes. <laughs> and we're going to talk through this. And we'll walk through that thing because that's what, this stuff's important. You know, we're brothers. We have to work these things out together. Well, if, if it doesn't work there, you bring it before the church. What's the goal? Rest, restoration, reconciliation. The church hears the matter. They can weigh in. No, I, you know, hang on a second. I have a question. What about this? And, you know, there's, there's a lot that can engage that situation. But at the end of the day, According to Matthew 18, who is it that has the authority to remove people from the congregation? At the end of the day, it's the church, right? If, if, here before the church, if he doesn't repent, he's removed. So if a church's removal, saying that you're not in faith, you're not repentant, has meaning, and according to Matthew 18, it does, then a church's acceptance should have meaning as well. Should be equally, in fact, at least equally as meaningful, if not more so. Uh, church membership signifies an individual commitment to grasp hold of one another in, in love and, and, and in discipleship. In other words, when someone says, I'm a member here, you're saying, I have a responsibility not just for myself, but for the others that are here that are a part of this body. If, you know, if, if my hand doesn't like my eye and my eye gets poked, my hand isn't you know, supposed to just go off laughing about the eye, right? I mean, my hand's going to do something to protect my eye and guard my eye. And, I mean, we protect one another. We're a body. Yeah, but I'm, a, I'm an eye. I'm not a hand. I mean, eyes are so much more important. We don't think that way in a body, do we? Okay? We have to, we have to care for one another. And even the more invaluable parts, seemingly, or more modest parts, we treat with special treatment, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. So that the... the, the uh, senior citizen who's dying is as important as the young couple who's coming in and having children. And wow, that's exciting, right? The church is growing with young people. Well, yes, but young people who are engaged in the whole of life and caring for those amongst us who are not just thinking about themselves and their generation, but are cross-generational and caring for others. Because, you know, 
a lot, of, a lot of times we love to come into churches that think about our generation, but the only way we're ever going to be those kind of people is to start thinking outside of our own generation now, right? We've got to begin practicing that now. We all have to begin to think of the others, the, the weaker, the, and, and, and how do we care for them? So our dying sister, uh, Barb, who's you know, dying from cancer right now, serving her and caring for her in that time of need is every bit as much a part of being a church as, say, serving on the worship team. It's what it's, what it's all about. It's a commitment to one another. Church membership signifies a regular responsibility that involves people in each other's lives for the purposes of the gospel. Um, committed to help, committed to encourage, and committed to pray for one another, to rebuke when we need to rebuke, to love. Um, I mean, imagine marriage vows that said, you know, I commit to love you as long as everything is going well in our relationship. I mean, how many would say I do to that, right? You bet, I'll sign up, right? No, no way, right? I'm not, if that's all my spouse is committed to, well, things aren't going to always go well. And in church membership, you know, you you may move, you may be else, we don't just flee when the first sign of trouble comes, do we? We, 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 we stand up under it. It's just like in marriage. In marriage, it's, it's working through the difficulties that cause growth and maturity and character change, right? And so, same in church, church membership. Oftentimes, it's when we stick with a relationship long term that we grow and mature. And we change. And others change. And we can, we can, we can build in those relationships. You know, as I've often said to people, it's one thing I can guarantee you if you become a member at Gulf Coast and stay very long. One thing. I will offend you. It's about the only thing I can guarantee you, but I can promise you that I will offend you. And, and, and I'll offend you either because of my sin. That's a very strong possibility because I sin regularly. Uh, so it could be because of my sin. Or I'll, I'll offend you because of your sin, you know, because you're offended over something that, that might actually be rooted in you. Or more likely than either of those two is I'll sin because of our sin. Yours and mine together in some way cross paths and, and I offend you. But I can assure you that at some point we, we will find this place of offense. And when that happens, my, my, my key, can, key appeal to you is to come and tell me. Hey, that really bugged me when you said that. Well, okay, I'm, I'm, let's talk about that. I need to understand more about what it is that, that I said that bothered you. I need to understand what it is you heard. I, I need to understand that because, I, A, I, I certainly don't, unless I did, which would be really unusual. I, 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 I wasn't intending to offend you, so let, let's, let's see, you know, what, what happened here and find out. And it might well be my instance. I had somebody tell me one time, I mean, I, I made some comments that, I thought were harmless, but they were offensive to them. And when they explained what was offensive, I realized, yeah, that was really insensitive of me to make those comments. Okay, That was really unkind of me to make those comments. And I asked their forgiveness. Um, and since I made them publicly, I had to ask the church's forgiveness too. And, and that's just the way it goes. Um, sometimes I've just, you know, I, I like joking around. And I'll, I've made jokes about things that were just, to me, just obvious and funny, but not realizing somebody's own personal experience that it, it sent them into a, uh, just kind of a downward spiral, difficulty and, and, and sadness. Uh, not intended, you know, but, but it happened. So I, I've had to learn I've got to be careful in what I say. So we, we're going to have those opportunities. Yeah, book of Proverbs. Amen, faithful wounds. Um, so, so I will offend you and others will offend you and that's when we get together and we work through those things um what what are the requirements of church membership um first repentance baptism and belief most important uh aspect of church membership is a lifestyle of repentance and belief Uh, a genuine commitment to consistently repent of Known sin as it occurs and trust in Jesus' death and resurrection and acquittal before God. Um, and, and, and baptism being uh, an outward, you know, obedience to what Christ has commanded us. It shows that we are following Christ in baptism. He's called us to that. And it, it's an opportunity for the, the church 
elders to look at our life, our testimony, our confession, and say, yes, we affirm that this person is a true believer. Now, we don't have somebody get baptized again that's already been a believer and baptized. Excuse me one second. Um, so we don't require, some churches will do baptism for every new member, and we don't obviously do that. But if somebody's not been baptized, we want to, as a believer, we, we do want them to be baptized. <coughs> in Matthew 28, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Okay? Uh, when it comes to belief, we have a statement of faith. Um, it's important that we unite around statements of, of faith. You know, it's, I have a friend whose denomination, he's a pastor, his denomination, you know, about, I don't know, a century ago, a little over a century ago, said, we have no creed but the Bible. Well, that sounds pretty good, right? We have no creed but the Bible. In other words, we're not going to add anything to this. We're not going to say what we believe other than we believe the Bible. Well, today that denomination believes in just about anything except the Bible. He's preaching the gospel in that denomination, but he gets assailed for it on a regular basis. I mean, he, they would rather get rid of him. They just don't know how since they've accepted it. He could be a Buddhist and be, they'd be happier with him. Preaching Buddhism and that Buddha is a way to heaven and they'd be happier with him. But the problem they've got is they've said that anything goes, and so preaching the gospel goes too, so they can't figure out how to get rid of him. So anything goes in that, in that denomination. And, and his point when we talk about that is, is you can't just say, I believe the Bible. You've got to say, what in particular about the Bible do you... You know, there's a lot here, and to say that is essentially saying nothing. So we have a statement of faith. Now, this is infallible in its original manuscript, and our statement of faith is not. But our statement of faith at least identifies a core of doctrine that we believe are critical to this. And obviously, I don't expect people to believe every line in our statement of faith. Ask me in 10 years, I'd probably adapt a few of them myself. But in core, in, in its you know, aim and direction, you know, if, if the foul lines go from the, the far edges of left field to the far edges of right field, you know, we're not, in the, we're not in foul territory. You know, we might not be straight out center field, but we're not in foul territory in that statement of faith. And so, uh, can we embrace that? Can we say that the only way of salvation is Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ is God, you know, the second person of the Trinity? Can we affirm those key and essential uh, Christian truths? Can, and can we, even on the areas that might be less than essential, at least agree, hey, we can labor together around these truths. We can labor together around these truths. So the statement of faith is, is important. And then we have relational commitments, which we will look at in the envelope here in a minute, which describe how we handle various aspects, more unusual aspects of church life. Uh, five basic responsibilities of membership. Attend regularly, give regularly, pray regularly, attend family meetings particularly, um, and instruct and admonish one another. So you can't be a member if you don't show up, right? You know, you're just in regular attendance. That doesn't mean you never miss a week or, you know, think, we get that. That's life, right? And, and so that's part of reality. Um, but there's a commitment. I mean, if you, how committed in, do you want your pastor to be, right? I mean, well, I mean, he comes most of the time. <laughs> that would seem really odd, right? <laughs> you know, he's there generally unless there's a really good game on that came on earlier, you know. Um, something like that, right? I mean, generally speaking, you think he should be there. And, and so all members, I mean, we don't just elevate that. Would it be possible to turn down the AC a bit, as in make it cooler? Or is it just like broken? Um, uh, is it good? Thank you. Um, give regularly. That's just part, and you know, I'm not going to take full time here to, to expound on it, but it's just part of our commitment to a church family is to be a part of its financial aspect. You don't, you know, go to Wendy's every day for lunch and never give them any money. I mean, it just doesn't really work that way, does it? And uh, you don't stay in your apartment or wherever it is you live and never actually contribute financially to the situation. They, they have problems with that. And so as a part of our church membership, we, we're committed financially. Anything we're committed to, 
right? We're committed financially. Guys, try proposing to a woman and saying, listen, I'd like to marry you, but I'm not really going to be willing to contribute my finances to the equation. (laughs) She'll say, yeah, right, okay. (laughs) We'll see you later. And that'll be it. So pray regularly. Um, It's how we edify one another. It's how we encourage one another. It's how we... If, if we aren't a community of faith, we are not a community. I mean, we're not the Lions Club. Great, the Lions Club's fine. I have nothing wrong, nothing wrong with the Lions Club. But we're a church. And so being a part of that church, one of the ways we do that and vitally do that is through prayer. Uh, family meetings are very important because uh, they're just such an important aspect of how we function and do things as a church. Um, and then, obviously, just living life together, encouraging one another. Uh, in, in, in so many ways. Okay. Envelopes, please. May I have the envelope? Now, open, open these up if you would. We, we, we've had a, uh, a flyer that we've used in the past. It's, you know, ways I can serve at Gulf Coast. Well, since we had the ministry fair today, uh, we're utilizing this. It's a little more up to date. Um, even though it says things like turn in at the booth or something like that. Um, but information table, well, you can always turn them in at the resource center or get them to us in any way you like, but these just kind of give you some idea of, uh, you know, kind of fill out ways that you can serve. Many of you are already serving in many ways, and that's cool, um, but if you're looking for ways, this might help you identify that, and when you meet with um, one of the pastors uh, in, in the process of membership, and we'll talk about that in a minute, uh, it, it creates a, a great way to talk about ways that you might serve. Um, I'm going to have you look at this right here. It's membership profile and relational commitments. I'm going to start with the relational commitments piece. Okay, relational commitments. Um, everything behind this relational commitments piece is part of the relational commitments. There's, uh, there's a, uh, there's somewhere in the, I think it's in this piece, it's going to say, have you read the relational commitments? And a lot of times people say, I don't know, what were those? Well, they're these. Okay, <laughs> so I don't know if I read them. Well, they're these. Oh, yeah, I read those. Well, that's what these are. Okay, the first one, statement on peacemaking and reconciliation. Now, I'm not going to go through each of these in detail. That's why they are in detail, is you have the opportunity to read them. But I want to kind of give you an overview of them so you kind of understand why they're here and what they are, okay? Um, and feel free to ask questions as we go. And we'll have more time for questions at the end as well. Um, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. Um, we are committed as a church to building a, a culture of peace, um, as some have described it, uh, that reflects God's peace, the power of the gospel, uh, of Christ in our lives. Um, now, that doesn't mean we won't have conflict, however. In fact, that means we will work through conflict differently than the world works through conflict. doesn't mean we won't have it. You put this many people together in one situation, unless we're all totally sanctified all at once, which, by the way, doesn't really happen, <laughs> um, we're going to have conflicts. And those conflicts are going to be opportunities for us to practice the gospel, which means to forgive each other, to bear with one another. And one of the things I find fascinating as we read through the New Testament is how many times Paul or one of the other writers will appeal to us to forgive, to bear with, to endure, to have long-suffering. Now, you know what it means to have long-suffering toward others? It means that you're going to suffer, usually something that they're doing that really bothers you, and you're going to do it for a long time. Hence the term long-suffering, right? And, and, and so it, it's really a self-explanatory word. And, and that's never fun. But how we respond to that irritation and that conflict really determines whether we're letting the gospel really have its say in our lives. Okay? Are we willing to forgive? I mean, what did Christ do at the cross? He forgave those who were persecuting him. He, he endured you know, what his enemies were doing to him. Can we take in Christ and respond to things in that light? So, in here we talk about personal, personal peacemaking, so we're, what we do when we are uh, faced with a conflict. 
Then it talks about assisted peacemaking. So things get to a level where we're, we're not getting anywhere and we need to keep working on this. It might you know, involve something, financial loss or something of that nature. How do we get others involved? Well, you know, engage church leaders, work toward resolution. And it might even be that you, you work on finding a, uh, uh, an arbitrator, somebody who can help bring about reconciliation um, and, and bring mediation, rather is the word I'm looking for, but mediation in a situation. Um, so very, very important. And, and not just, you know, going on the attack mode and, and not really caring what the collateral damage is. It's just not how we function and act. As a Christian. So that's important. Very important. A little bit on the back of that page. The next one is. Statement on biblical counseling. Okay. Let me be clear. We do offer counseling here. We don't charge for counseling. But we offer biblical counseling. Okay. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. None of our guys are. We're not ashamed to say we offer biblical counseling. Because frankly. That's what we believe that we need. That's the first approach that needs to be taken. That is not to say that some people don't need some other form of psychiatric care. They may well need that, and we will do everything we can to work in conjunction with doctors if that would be uh, something that would serve that person in a given situation. But it's important to understand that that the psyche, which is the Greek word for soul, is what the Bible directs and and, and specifies to. Uh, We do soul care. That is what we do, uh, but we do it from a biblical framework. We are going to apply Scripture to a given situation. Now, I've, I've actually done biblical counseling with unbelievers, but I'm very upfront with them. My framework is the Scripture, and I'm going to be applying the gospel. And, and so at times, you're going to be the unbeliever in this discussion. <laughs> when I talk about how God deals with unbelief, well, that will be you <laughs> in this situation. But as long as you're willing to sit and walk through this, then I'm willing to work with you. Because the reality is, as believer or unbeliever, you know what people need? They need the gospel applied to their lives. You know, it's, it's what they need. Um, you know, one time, you know, years ago, we were working through some very difficult situations uh, with one of our children. And my wife asked me, well, do you think that they're converted or not converted? Do you think they're genuinely a believer or not genuinely a believer? They had made a profession in Christ. They had been baptized. Certainly, if you'd asked us at that point if they were a genuine believer, we'd have said yes. The difficulties of the moment, subjective, right? We're we're in the middle of this storm for a couple of years of of life. Um, The difficulties of the moment might, might lead one to wonder. And so you think that they're converted or not converted? And my answer was, well, I'm not sure that it matters. It was kind of a shocking response to them, to my wife. Well, what do you mean it doesn't matter? Well, let's just suppose that this child's a, an unbeliever right now. What, does it, what do they need? Well, they need the gospel, okay? And let's suppose my phone's dying right now. That was the warning that my phone is dying, so let me just... Shut down, it's noisy. Okay. Um, and, and if they're a believer, what do they need? Well, the gospel. So, so it's not going to change what I'm going to say to them, whether they're a believer or an unbeliever. Okay, so let's just work with that right now. I mean, I, I don't know, but in the process, the Lord will work that detail out. You know. In actuality, I think in hindsight, I would say they were clearly a believer because it was only, you know, really that hanging on to the Lord was the only thing that, that anchored them through that whole time period. So, um, we do biblical counseling, and, and there's things in there. Um, things to be aware of as a uh, person who might seek counsel. Um, the third paragraph, when a person seeks counsel from an elder at Gulf Coast Community Church, those communications are protected as private conversations in which a person's counsel cannot be used to incriminate them, nor can the pastor be compelled to testify about those conversations. However, when those communications are given in front of another person who is not a pastor, those privileges do not apply. Okay, and then there's also a statement on commitment to confidentiality, which we will address as well. So, let's say you're talking to me as your pastor, but here's a person over here who's not a pastor. Well, you've just said it in front of somebody who's not a pastor, so therefore this isn't confidential communication, okay? And there are some other aspects under um, the confidentiality statement which we'll look at as well that 
uh, is the next one. So let's look at that. The Bible teaches that Christians should carefully guard any personal and private information that others reveal to them. This applies to all of us, by the way. Protecting confidences is a sign of Christian love and respect. It also discourages harmful gossip, invites confession. By the way, if you have an environment of gossip, it's not a very good environment for confession, right? So <laughs> try to be, you know, guard the gossip. Let's not have that, and let's create a context where people can, be trust, can trust uh, in order to confess. And thus encourages people to seek needed counseling. Um, since these goals are essential to the ministry of the gospel and the work of the local church, all members... Uh, and those who attend the church are expected to refrain from gossip and to respect the confidences of others. In particular, our leaders will carefully protect all information that they receive through pastoral counseling subject to the following guidelines. Although confidentiality is to be respected as much as possible, there are times when it is appropriate to reveal certain information to others. In particular, when our leaders believe it is biblically necessary, they may disclose confidential information to appropriate people in the following circumstances. Uh, And there are, what is that, six different bullet points here. First, where multiple church leaders are involved in interacting with the individual about the circumstances, those leaders may come together to be more effective in counsel when beneficial. So if, you know, let's say you're meeting with Stephen and you're counseling with him, but then you're coming and meeting with me about the same thing. Well, hang on a second. We may talk with each other to help make sure we're, we're, we're communicating what we're hearing, that we're, you know, because you're talking to both of us about that. Now, the other week I was meeting with somebody, and uh, Stephen said, hey, I've been providing counsel with them. Uh, would it be helpful to, you know, after, and after this was after I'd met with him, to talk about what that was? I said, actually, no, because it was about completely something unrelated, so I don't need to really be aware of anything. I, they weren't coming to me for counsel about that. It was about something completely unrelated. Oh, okay, great. So, But that kind of situation, had it been about the same thing, you see, might have been useful to interact about it. Uh, When any leader other than an elder is providing care and uncertain how to counsel a person in a given situation, they may seek advice from an elder. For instance, you might be talking to your community group leader about something that you need counsel with. Your community group leader may come to one of the pastors and say, hey, I'm just trying to provide counsel in a situation. They'll generally keep it generic if they can, but unless that's not really important in the situation. But they may say, how would, I, how would you counsel somebody in this kind of a situation? Um, thirdly, when a person seeks counsel while attending another church, the counselor may ask permission from the council lead to involve the leaders of that church. It's not often, but occasionally somebody will come to us for counsel from another church. And assuming it's okay with their pastors that that happened, we may counsel them, but we may also say, can we speak with your pastor about this situation? Um, uh, fourth, When a person refuses to repent of sin and it becomes necessary to promote repentance through accountability and the redemptive church discipline listed in Matthew 18, which I've talked about plenty tonight, the counselor may invite one or two others to meet with the counselor or counselee to agree together to raise the matter together. Uh, Fifth, when a counselee has offenses or conflict with another party, every reasonable effort will be made to bring those parties together for reconciliation. This would not be applicable when one party represents a real threat or danger to the other. Which is to say, when we speak of reconciliation, we're not going to ask a victim to be reconciled to their abuser and bring them together in that situation. That's not what we're talking about. That is inappropriate. And there are other (laughs) biblical commands that come into play to protect the victim in that situation. So, let me be clear on that. So we're not, we're not suggesting that kind of a situation. Um, and then the final one. When, a, when the person who disclosed the information or any other person is in imminent danger of serious harm unless otherwise, others intervene, or when leaders are required by law to report suspected abuse. So those would be the kinds of cases where we would, confidentiality would be overridden by uh, either laws or imminent danger to another, uh, which would bring that about. Mm-hmm. Or, you know, that, that type of thing, you know, um, or threat to themselves and to, and to others that uh, a nurse or a doctor could come in to maybe to investigate or a physician on record could come to you and mm-hmm. investigate a person. You know, you, come, you find out as a member of the church mm-hmm. and uh, because of the 
able to share some information with you that you've done in counseling with your person or what did your person told you. Yeah. You would tell, you would be able to then speak about their person in that, in that situation? If it was for their good, yes. I mean, obviously I would want their permission before I, if, if at all possible, before I revealed anything. Um, but I'd, I'd have to be very careful in that situation of what I could, you know, anything that, uh, yeah, I've never had that exact situation at all, but it, you know, anything that was confidentially shared that wouldn't necessarily affect their safety in that moment, I, could, I wouldn't be free to share. So it could be situational. It, very situational for something like that. Um, if I knew something that would help protect them or others, and obviously in that situation I would uh, do what was necessary for their protection. Um, the next one is statement on discipline and restoration in church life. Um, and uh, basically, we've talked a bit about church discipline, but l- let me l- let me share this way. I, I, here's going to be my overview. The, the, if you look at Matthew 18, it begins with this story about you know the the the, the hundred sheep. Uh, one sheep wanders off, the shepherd leaves, the 99 goes after the one. And, and the focus and the emphasis in that chapter is the restoration of the, the one who's in error. One is in error, you go to him, he repents, you've won your brother. If he doesn't, you bring two or three. If he repents, you've won your brother. And, and the goal in each stage is always restoration and forgiveness. And it ends, so it begins with the shepherd going after the one. And it ends with the, the parable about forgiveness and, 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 you know, how, how, what depth we go to to forgive. So, church discipline, the goal of church discipline is not to get rid of people. The goal of church discipline is to uh, bring people into reconciliation with our church family and to forgive them. So, it's always vital that we keep that goal in mind through each step of the process. That it's not some sort of tribunal for kicking people out out of this pure community. First of all, the moment we think we're a pure community because of how we act, we're wrong. The only thing that makes us pure is Christ, right? And the blood of Christ. And so it's a community of forgiven sinners working to reconcile other sinners who are in various stages of repentance at any given moment. Okay? And keeping that in mind is so very, very helpful. Um, we, We have not had many, but over the course of my Goodness, this is 16 years of, of leading this church as of February, basically. Well, effectively May, um, so early next month. Um, we've had a few cases where we've had to remove people from membership because of unrepentant sin. And or, and or brought them, I should say, add to that, there's those who were removed and those who were brought before the church but repented in the process and didn't have to be removed. But in each of those particular cases, I can go to a time after the fact when that person has communicated either to me or to others and it's gotten back to me that that was the most loving process they've ever walked through in their life. They, they can't imagine somebody having a problem with that. In fact, one time I was in a meeting where somebody was expressing grievances. They'd never experienced church discipline. They're expressing grievances about how cruel it was that we would ever do that. They were present in the meeting that we did that. But a person was there who had experienced it and was in one of those meetings as the person receiving the discipline who said, excuse me, excuse me. You can't speak from my shoes, but that was one of the most gracious and loving things that's ever been done to me. There was nothing wrong with what was done to me. I I was in sin and I needed to repent. And because of how lovingly it was done, I did. It took me longer than it should have, but I did. And, you know, right now we're in process of working through restoration and reconciliation to the church with somebody that was removed five plus years ago. But in many conversations since then, they've communicated how loved they felt through the process and how they know they need to repent, but they haven't. And now they're at a place where they're they're saying, I need, I'm I'm there, I'm I'm going to repent, I'm going to turn. And, and, and come back. So uh, always keep in mind that the goal of discipline, just like with children that are disciplined, is love and restoration and reconciliation. So as you read this document, that should be the overriding thought <laughs> that guides you through that document because that has to be our overriding thought as we walk through 
the process. And maybe because of that, we have been late in disciplining people as opposed to early in disciplining them. But I would rather stand before the Lord on Judgment Day and say, you know, we were a little late on three than a little premature on four or whatever. You know, I mean, even on one for that matter. It just, just, I want to exercise patience as God has toward me. Statement on preserving marriages. There's a lot here. Um, in short, um, let me say this. If you have any question about... Uh, well, most of you are young, so I'm not going to apply. But if you have any question about, you know, am I qualified to get remarried? What is my status? Come and talk to a pastor. That's the easy way to answer <laughs> that question. Because there are so many different variables. We have to walk through each given situation and walk through what all is involved there. Um, I could say much. We just, we just spent uh, lengthy dialogue as an elder team through a particular issue of, uh, you know, what, what is appropriate in, in remarriage? What does the Scripture say? And, and it was a very fruitful time. Um, but, but I want to sum it up to say this, that the Scriptures about marriage, divorce, and remarriage were given to have mercy as a means of mercy for people to serve them in their very broken relationships in this fallen world. And, and so as we apply these things, we, we can actually find that they are very much a means of mercy and, and, and that they have a context in which they came that was really a means of mercy. So that's a, a, a document that's important. And then statement on protecting our children. Um, we're going to do everything we can to protect our children. And if in any way, shape, or form we find any of them are harmed, they come first because they aren't powerful enough to do anything about it. And so we must put them in a place of protection. That's my short version of that <laughs> rather brief page. But um, uh, there you have that. And then finally, and then we'll, we'll just open up for dialogue, but this is a membership profile. This is simply when somebody says, well, if I want to be a member, what do I do? Well, you come to the classes, check. <laughs> you discern if this is where the Lord wants you to be a member. I'd encourage you to be a member somewhere. If this isn't it, find a place, right? Membership means something. By the way, if you're discerning, you figured out that one of the things membership means is that you could get kicked out, right? And, 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 and I think Groucho Marx once said that he wouldn't want to be a member of any club that wanted him as a member. Uh, I might say that I wouldn't want to be a member of a church in which I couldn't be kicked out. And it's actually, though I say that only a hair tongue-in-cheek, it's not really at all tongue-in-cheek, here's the point. I want to be in a place where I can be held to an account, whether I'm a pastor or not a pastor. I want to be in a place where following Christ actually means something. Okay? And we should all be in a place such as that. So, it just has basic information. Um, but, but fill this out, turn it in, uh, either to one of the pastors, the office staff, mail it in. However you get it there is fine. Email it, you know, attach it, whatever. But then we will schedule... Uh, a, what's called a pastoral interview with you, where you sit down with one of the pastors, uh, one of the elders, pastors, so it could be any one of the seven elders, and generally it's going to be Stephen Darren or myself, just because we do this full-time, so it's a little bit easier to fit it in, but it could be any of us, and just walk through this, walk through any questions you might have. One of the questions on here is, you know, do you have any outstanding questions about the doctrines or practices of the church? And that's a great time to say, well, in general, I agree with the, the statement of faith, but I have a question about this, or I'm not sure if I agree with that. That's okay to put that down, you know. It won't keep you out, A, unless it's really, like, wild. And, and B, it's a great opportunity to dialogue through that and, and, and be aware of that. Um, and, and so that, one of the things, as you probably were made aware of in the second class, is that we'll, we'll ask you in your own words just to describe the gospel. Just in your words, what is the gospel? Because that's important to us to know that you have some firm grasp on the gospel. It doesn't have to be a perfect grasp. We're not expecting you to preach next week uh, by any means. But, but can you share just kind of basic, what is the, 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 the gospel? And um, you're not being graded on it, but we, we want to make sure that that's clear. And that can turn into some great conversation. Um, so then that, and then, and then after that, basically, uh, 
you'll be would be recommended to the church body to be a member. And then in the next, we generally have it's either three or four. I think it's quarterly, so four member meetings a year. And you, you know, the the folks that are being put forward for membership would all be put forward to the congregation uh, at a member meeting, not on a Sunday morning. And then the congregation would affirm, you know, bringing them in. And, and basically, we we tell them, and if if you don't know them, we ask you to affirm them based on the fact that the elders have recommended them. But for those that are in, for instance, their community group or in close association with them, if they have deep concerns, please come to us and let us know uh, what it is that's going on there that might cause you concern about them being a member. And that would just become an opportunity to really care for that person um, in that situation. Um, you know, so for instance, one time I had somebody say, yeah, I, you know, I just haven't seen them sober in the last three months. Every time I see them, they're drunk. Well, that would be an issue. Let's talk about that. <laughs> Let's talk about that. That could be a real concern, right? That's actually a, a, a very real and you know, they, they can might hide it around the pastors, but not necessarily around everybody that they're around. So um, can provide a means of care uh, for that person. Um, okay, thoughts, questions. I've thrown out a lot tonight. Everything from, is membership biblical? I've made a case for at least implied membership in the early church. Certainly not disorganized chaos. Anybody is in. Um, but they may or may not have had what something that looked you know as close to what we have as membership. But I think what we're doing is in keeping with the the heart of what was there. So anything from that to these uh, statements on commitment, relational commitments, etc.